0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we now go into your word, we ask for you to prepare our hearts to be ready to hear whatever it is you have to say to us. And if it be a hard word, a word that is convicting and challenging, that makes us uncomfortable, well then prepare us, Lord. Prepare us to receive what you have to say to us through your word, by your spirit, so that we may respond with faith and obedience to you. Do this, O Lord, for your glory and our good, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started a new series in the book of Malachi that we are calling Exposing the Dangers of Spiritual Apathy. And as we saw, the book begins with a strong affirmation of God's love for his people. You see, by now, the people have returned from exile, but Israel was still struggling to establish herself. She was impoverished. She was still under foreign rule. And yet, in spite of all these bleak circumstances, the Lord reminds Israel that he has set his love upon her way back in the ancient past. It was a love rooted in God's sovereign freedom to love, really, whomever he chooses to love with no view to your worth or your merit. And so if he sets his love on you before you're born, before even the foundation of the world with no consideration of your worthiness or your goodness, then you know for certain that his love is secure. If you did nothing to gain his love, why would you fear losing it because of something that you did or that you failed to do? So the Israelites in Malachi's day can rest assured that the Lord loves them. And yet, and yet they don't feel his love. Instead, they question it. There's this confrontational tone throughout the book of Malachi. The Lord keeps contending with his people, calling out their spiritual apathy, but they continually question and dispute the charges. As we go through this book, we're going to see this pattern of the Lord making a charge and then the people immediately refuting it. The Lord says this, but you say, how have we done that? Well, in today's text, the Lord is going to take issue with the people's worship. He directs his charge at the priests in particular, those who were responsible for temple worship. But the problem really extends to the people, to every worshiper bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, The the Lord is going to describe their worship here in our text as polluted. They're offering polluted sacrifices. But notice with me what makes this polluted worship. Notice how it's not because they're worshiping false gods. You see, other prophets in their books will call out Israel for their spiritual adultery, for chasing after false gods, for for bowing down to idols. But notice that's not what Malachi is doing in his book. He's not accusing the people of worshiping other gods. It's it's not spiritual adultery that's the problem. It's spiritual apathy. Malachi is not dealing with the who of worship, but the how. The people are worshiping the right God. They're offering their sacrifices to Yahweh, so there's no confusion there. They got the who right, but how are they worshiping the Lord? How you worship Matters. How you worship God reveals what you think of God. Well, the way that Israelites were worshiping in Malachi's date revealed a rather low view of God. Based on how they worshiped, one could conclude that they had both lost love and respect for the Lord. Not enough to forfeit their faith, not enough to, to abandon their religious duty, but as they go through the motions of worship, It was characterized by spiritual apathy. And this is what polluted their worship. And this is really where we need to ask ourselves some tough questions. Sure, we're we're not here to worship any other God but the Lord God. But how are we worshiping him? And what does the way in which we worship God reveal about what we think of God? You know, we live in such a consumer-driven, entertainment-saturated culture. And if we just let those cultural forces shape our attitude when we come to church, if, if I just show up expecting to be served with my favorite songs and an entertaining message that helps me to overcome this or that problem, then it begins to reveal some underlying assumptions about God. The, that attitude reveals that the God whom I worship is merely a a personal God who serves my needs and and who's who's here to keep me entertained. And let's just acknowledge how this pandemic that we are experiencing has created a dilemma where the majority of churches across our nation have begun to live stream their services. And now, I'm not here to argue whether it was wise or justifiable to, to do so during a pandemic. I think a pandemic brings some unique circumstances that, that call for some unique solutions. So th- that's not my point. My only point is that if the how of your worship consistently involves sitting by yourself in your room, staring at your screen, which, by the way, is the same screen you use to watch Netflix, then it's no shock if your view of the Lord begins to resemble a personal God here to serve your needs and to keep you entertained. How you worship God reveals what you think of God. And for the Israelites of Malachi's day, their worship of the one true God devolved into polluted worship. And that polluted worship was very revealing. So as we're going to see in our text, we're going to to learn three things about polluted worship. First, what polluted worship expresses about our God. Second, what polluted worship exposes about our hearts. And third, what polluted worship embezzles from our King. So let's begin by considering what polluted worship expresses about our God, or at least about our particular vision of God. In our text, Malachi is greatly concerned with temple reform. He's calling out the priests for their lackness, laxness in allowing worshipers to offer unfit sacrifices to the Lord. They were desecrating the holy altar in the holy temple of the holy God. But what becomes obvious is that Malachi cares about temple reform, not just because he cares about worship being conducted in a proper and orderly manner, but because he understands that how we worship reveals what we think of God. And so he begins with an argument from the lesser to the greater. And it's a very effective rhetorical device if you think about it. If you appeal to a shared assumption with your audience, then you are much more persuasive when you then go, sh- go on to show how their behavior is inconsistent with that shared assumption. So listen to verse 6. And this is the shared assumption. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Now Malachi's day, there would have been no objections to that. Everyone would agree that sons should honor their fathers and and servants ought to fear their masters, their lords. But if that's so, if you agree with that, then why do you neither honor nor fear the Lord who is both a father and master or Lord Lord? Over Israel, let's keep reading in verse six. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? So the appropriate response to God as our Father and as our Lord is honor and respect which is another word for the fear or the reverence that's mentioned here. But the priests of Israel were treating the Lord worse than than human authority figures, showing less honor and less respect than than we would even give to our our own earthly fathers and earthly masters. Now, as as we're going to see, the whole people of God are guilty here, but the Lord is going to single out the priests because They're the very ones who are responsible to lead everyone else in God-honoring, God-fearing worship. And yet, yet they're failing in their duty. Now, the priests appear to be clueless as to how they're failing. Because they immediately question how they've despised the name of God. I think that just goes to show how blind we can be to the ways in which we dishonor God in our worship. I think that's another reason why a sermon like this on a topic like this is so necessary because we need God to sometimes directly confront polluted worship with a, with a prophetic word. Or otherwise, we might just continue in it completely blind to what we're doing. So we need to be challenged by God's word, even if it's uncomfortable, Because to be challenged by his word is actually a severe mercy from the Lord. Well, the Lord goes on in verse 7 to explain that they've despised his name by accepting polluted sacrifices on his altar. So listen to his words. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now polluted here needs to be understood in ritual terms, and so it refers to something unclean. And the next verse is going to explain to us that they weren't offering unclean animals per se, but they were offering clean animals that were unfit for sacrifice due to some blemish. Mosaic law required that the animals that you sacrifice need to be free of any physical blemish. And in Leviticus chapter 22, the law specifically prohibited the offering of blind, lame, and mutilated animals. But you know, the point here is that these offerings were polluted primarily by the worshiper's attitude towards God and only secondarily by the quality of the offering itself. And I think the priests pick up on that in the text. Notice how their response is to ask, how have we polluted you, O God? You see, even they recognize that a polluted offering pollutes God because it reveals what we really think of God. Now, you might be wondering, how can God be polluted? Well, it's not suggesting that God himself now becomes unclean or imperfect by a polluted sacrifice, but it is suggesting that God's reputation is polluted or soiled, that his name is despised. The priests were, quote, saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now, whether they were actually telling people that it was okay to despise the altar is is questionable, but really, it's, it's their actions that were speaking louder than their words. By accepting these polluted offerings, they were sending a signal suggesting that God is not really all that holy. He's not all that special. He's not someone you'd really need to fear. And it's that attitude towards God that pollutes worship. Now, in verses 8 to 9, Malachi reinforces his point by returning to that argument from the lesser to the greater, arguing that you wouldn't even treat human authorities this way. So, listen to verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So Malachi's point here is that you don't even need God's law to tell you that a polluted offering is an an, an insulting, demeaning gift. Intuition alone tells you that you wouldn't give such a gift to a governor. Now Malachi here had in mind either a, a regional Persian official or a Persian-appointed Jewish governor like Nehemiah. Either way, it was common for the Israelites to give a tribute to the governor uh, in order to either meet a quota or just a curry favor. And so Malachi is saying, you wouldn't even dare give a blind or lame animal to the governor. Or if you... If he were speaking to us today, he might say, you wouldn't dare send your in-laws a Christmas fruit basket filled with rotten fruit or or half-eaten fruit. Or if if you were invited to dinner over at your boss's house, you wouldn't bring a half-empty bottle of your cheapest wine. You wouldn't do that. You, You know better than that. So what does it say? about how you view God if you treat him with less respect than you would treat your boss or your in-laws. It appears that you fear their opinion more than you fear God's. It would seem that their approval seems to matter more to you than God's. Malachi goes on in verse 9 to dare them to try this with God. See if you can get away with it. And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord goes on to say in verse 10 that it would be better, it would be better just to shut the doors of the temple and to stop all sacrifices than to perpetuate such polluted worship. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God would rather we stop worshiping altogether than to give worshipers the false impression that he is pleased by their polluted worship. God is not pleased because how we worship God reveals what we think of God. And so if we give him offerings that mean so little to us, well, then it reveals just how little God himself means to us. If our worship of him is cheap and poor, then it reveals how poorly we revere his name and how cheaply we view his glory. Now, of course, we're no longer bringing animal sacrifices because Christ himself, offered himself, his own body up as a final sacrifice for sin that fulfills the entire sacrificial system that you find under the old covenant. So as new covenant worshipers, we're told that we are now a holy priesthood and each of us can offer spiritual sacrifices through Christ every single time we gather for corporate worship. And so the question for us is, what are these spiritual sacrifices that Christians are now to bring to the Lord in our worship? Well, let's just consider an example that suits the context of Malachi. Let's talk about monetary offerings that we bring to God in the context of our Christian corporate worship. It's often called the tithe, and it's actually a topic that's going to come up later in chapter 3 as an issue by which the Israelites were dishonoring God and, and robbing God. Now, for Malachi's audience, being under the old covenant, the tithe was mandatory for them. They were obliged to give the first tenth of their crops or of their income. But for new covenant believers like us, the Mosaic law and all of its stipulations on, on the tithe within the sacrificial system have been fulfilled in Christ. So when we speak of tithing as Christians, it would fall more under the category of a free will offering. It's not a law for us. But many churches, including ours, would still encourage worshipers to tithe, to give at least 10% of their annual income to the ministry of the church. The idea behind this is not because it would be a transgression of the law to give anything less than 10%, because again, remember, this does not pertain to law anymore. It pertains rather to grace, the grace that we receive in the gospel of salvation. If we, as Christians, as recipients of a better covenant, enacted on better promises, established by the blood of Christ that speaks a better word, if we are to give less than the Old Testament saints, if we are to make less of a sacrifice than they did, even though we are recipients of more grace, then what does that say about our view of God and of his gracious salvation in Christ? Wouldn't it be an insult? Wouldn't it despise his name if we gave less or nothing at all? How we worship God reveals what we think of God. And so how we give back to God out of the resources that he's already given to us reveals what we think of him and his grace to save us and sustain us, his grace to provide our daily bread and to provide for our every need. Imagine with me. Imagine if you owed millions of dollars in debt to a lender. A debt you know that you could never repay. But imagine if, if he just graciously forgave your loan and, and set you free from under, under the, the mountain of, of crippling debt. If you would instinctually bring to your lender as nice of a gift of gratitude as you could afford, even knowing that it's just a microscopic fraction of what you truly owe, then what does that reveal about you? What does that reveal about what you think of God and his forgiveness if even the topic of giving and tithing makes you uncomfortable? Friends, if the word of God is making you uncomfortable, well, just remember, it's a severe mercy. God is trying to expose something in your heart in order to heal it. And that leads to our second lesson. We saw how polluted worship expresses what we think about God. It also exposes what we feel about God. Let's consider what polluted worship exposes about our hearts. And and let's be clear here. It's what's in our hearts that matters most to God. You see, human authorities, like like the governor mentioned in verse 8, they're going to focus on the gift itself because you know, th- that's all they can focus on. Th- they care about the quality and the quantity of what you bring because they can't read your heart. They don't know your motives. And so they can only judge based on the gift that they see. But God can do what human authorities cannot. He can see your motives. And so he's more concerned with the quality of your heart Than the quality of your gift. That's important for us to stress because I know at first glance, when you read this text, Malachi makes it sound as if God's main concern is to receive the highest quality goods, as if his concern is that anything less than the best is just an insult to me. I want the best. And, you know, yes. On one hand, for the worshiper who has an unblemished animal to give and yet doesn't offer it to the Lord, well, then God does take issue because of what it says about his heart. In verse 14, there's an example of a man who has an unblemished animal in his flock. He, he vows it to God, but then in the end, he swaps it with a blemished animal. And that's a problem. It's exposing something in his heart. But the kind of polluted worship that's being confronted here in our text wouldn't apply, for example, it wouldn't apply to the faithful widow that caught Jesus' eye in the temple courts. You remember that story? The story about the, the, the widow who gave a measly two copper coins which amounted to just one cent? She was commended for her sacrifice, even though her offering paled in comparison to what the rich were bringing that day. And it's because Jesus could see inside her heart. He could see her motives. And he knew that she was giving in faith because she was giving from all that she had. So, friends, I I don't want you to get the impression that God cares first and foremost about the external quality or quantity of what you have to offer in worship. He really only cares to the extent that it reveals the internal motivations and attitudes of your heart. And I hope that's a real relief for many of you, especially for those of you who feel like all you have to bring to God in worship is blemished in one way, shape or form. If God is expecting unblemished worship from us today, many of us feel like we have nothing to offer. So that's why it's so important to stress, so important to stress that it's the heart of the worshiper that's in view. Well, for the Israelites in Malachi's day, what their polluted worship exposed was apathetic hearts. They brought lame and mutilated animals as offerings because they just didn't care anymore. They, they hadn't given up on their religious duties, but all of it was just a bore. Listen to the Lord's accusation in verse 13. But you say, what a wariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord. So the worship of God had become a weary burden to them. It was something to snort at, something to thumb your nose at. Worship was boring because God had become boring to them. He no longer amazed them. The glory of his grace made them yawn. Spiritual apathy had taken root within the hearts of these priests. These priests who who were so privileged, if you think about it, They alone among all the peoples, among all the tribes of Israel had the great honor of serving the Lord in his courts. They were entrusted to guard the holiness of the altar and the purity of worship. What a unique privilege, what a high honor to be bestowed. And yet these priests were bored with their job. It had become just this monotonous grind. Take the blood from this guy's sacrifice, and throw it up against the altar, and then flay the offering, and and and, and cut it all into pieces, and then and then get the fire started, and and, and arrange the wood uh, in in order, and, and then and then arrange all the pieces, you know, the head, the fat, and then burn it all, and then just repeat it all again for the next worshipper. On and on, it was a grind for them. They, they they were just doing it to make a living. That's what spiritual apathy look like for these priests in Malachi's day? Well, friends, that just begs the question, what does spiritual apathy in worship look like for us in our day? Well, let me just point to an obvious example that is particularly relevant for us as we continue to live under pandemic conditions. And I should warn you that this could get uncomfortable. But remember, the uncomfortableness Is a severe mercy. What I'm going to say is that spiritual apathy in worship often manifests itself in a rather lax attitude towards the gathered worship of the church on the Lord's day. Let me just offer you another illustration. Let's say at your job, your boss calls for a weekly staff meeting where he expects everyone to be there. Could you imagine yourself consistently arriving 10 to 15 minutes late to every meeting? Or could, could you imagine just missing a meeting practically every other week? No, you, you couldn't imagine that because you would never do that because you care too much about your job. You care too much about what your boss thinks of you. But then what does it reveal if you consistently arrive late for worship service or if you're irregular in your attendance. I'm afraid that it reveals that you don't care about worship as much as you care about your job, that you're more worried about displeasing your boss than you are the Lord. A lax attitude towards gathered worship on the Lord's day where it's not treated as a priority is really no different at the heart level than than offering a blind animal to the Lord. They're all signs of spiritual apathy where you just don't really care anymore. And and think about what actually takes place within a worship service. If you consistently grumble because the songs being led are, are not your favorite songs, Or if the truth of God's word or the glory of his gospel being proclaimed in the service no longer moves you anymore. If you're just there going through the motions, then is that not similar at the heart level to offering a lame or sick sacrifice to the Lord? Romans 12 verse 1 says that in Christian worship, we as the Christians We bring ourselves, our own bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And so if that means we are the sacrifices now under the new covenant, then what's going on in the heart can potentially pollute our worship. That's the point. So we've seen how polluted worship expresses what we really think about God And how he exposes what we really feel about him. Well, the third lesson to consider is what polluted worship embezzles from our king. And this is so important to stress because without realizing the true offense of polluted worship, you might conclude that God is just being too hard on us. I mean, you you might feel like I'm being too hard on you. Making you feel bad for not tithing or for coming late to service or for skipping church altogether. I mean, is this one of those those sermons where the preacher is just trying to guilt trip all of us to conform to certain behaviors? Well, I understand if that's how you feel. I understand if this is making you feel bad. But if you just consider our text, if you you read it again for yourself, I think you would agree that that wasn't Malachi's intent. The tone of our text is that of rebuke. It's intended to rebuke us. It's intended to make us feel bad, which really fits the severity of the entire situation, considering what polluted worship takes from God. This idea of embezzling God or robbing God is going to come up again later in chapter 3, verse 6, when Malachi is going to directly address the Old Testament tithe. But even here, in chapter 1, we see hints that the act of polluted worship does take something from God. In verse 14, the man who vows to the Lord, an unblemished animal, and yet swaps it out with a blemished one, there he's called a cheat. He's cheating God out of something. And in the end, it's not the animal that God is concerned about. I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not in need of any more animals. What concerns God is the glory of his name. Listen to the end of verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So God's intent is for his name to be feared revered and worshiped among the nations but we go and cheat God we cheat our great king we we steal from him when we rob him of his due glory by our polluted worship look back at verse 11 and, and just see why God was so fed up with Israel's polluted worship that he would just rather they shut the temple and just stop offering cheap and unworthy sacrifices He was ultimately concerned with the message that that was sending about his name among the nations. Listen to verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So God chose Israel. He, he set his love upon her from before the foundation of the world. And he called Israel to be a witness for his name among the nations. To be a city on a hill, to, to shine his light, to proclaim his glory, to make his name great among the nations. But if he is no longer great in the eyes of Israel, if he is treated with less honor than a father or less respect than a master then his chosen people are essentially stealing his glory and they are keeping his glory from the nations. In that sense, polluted worship embezzles from our great king. We embezzle his glory. And now I realize this is just going to make you feel even worse. You already feel bad about how You've been worshiping God in an unworthy manner, and now now you're being told you're stealing from him him as well. Well, friends, it's not going to ease up any as we get into chapter 2. This is actually how you should feel when you are reading Malachi chapter 1 and 2. But, you know, his original audience they would have heard Malachi's entire prophecy all in one sitting, but they wouldn't have just stopped at chapter two and been left to feel deeply disturbed and depressed. And so I I don't really want to leave you in the same state. So let me leave you instead with a word of hope that is found in the remainder of the book. Starting in Malachi chapter three, the tone of the book grows just a bit more hopeful as it looks to a future day when the Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. This is Malachi chapter three, verse one, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, If you remember in our passage, the Lord is calling for the doors of the temple to be shut. His glory has been profaned, and so it will no longer fill the temple. But all is not lost. One day, God will send another messenger like Malachi who will prepare the way for the Lord himself, who will descend and suddenly come to his temple once again. And as we continue reading, In the scriptures, when you get into the first book of the New Testament, you get into Matthew chapter 11, verses 10 to 14, that promise of a messenger where we are told is fulfilled in John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Lord in the flesh. And when he, Jesus, came to the temple, well, he found that the worship was still polluted. People were still cheating and stealing from God. And so he drove them out, but that just caused them to drive, to, to, to seek, to put him to death. But that was Jesus's plan all along to offer himself as an unblemished sacrifice for the, for the forgiveness of sins. Through his death, the temple was purified and its purposes was finally fulfilled. And God's glory was restored and his name was once again made great among the nations. And like a refiner's fire or a fuller's soap, as we're told in chapter 3, the sacrifice of Christ has a purifying effect on all those who believe in Christ. If the word of God has convicted you on this day, and now you realize that you have been offering polluted worship, and if that, if that has exposed within you, in you an apathetic heart towards God, well friends, there is but one treatment. An apathetic heart is a cold and hard heart, and, and it can only be warmed and softened by fire. the refiner's fire, which is, really the love of Christ expressed through the sacrifice of Christ for us. So as we come to the end of chapter one, recall how chapter one started with a strong affirmation of God's love for us. Regularly preaching that love, that love of God for you to your cold, apathetic heart. That my friends is how you warm your heart for God. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Though it be hard to hear, though it makes us uncomfortable, makes us squirm as we realize how in many ways we have polluted worship. We have have not given you worthy worship. Lord, forgive us. Lord, cleanse us, purify us, and purify our hearts so that our worship of you may be pure and holy and acceptable, that you may be pleased with our lives as we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. O Lord, do this for the sake of your glory, that your name may be known as great not just in our lives, not just in our homes, not just in our church, but to the ends of the earth. Oh Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.